This podcast is sponsored by Edwards Life Sciences. Please visit our clinical education website at education.edwards.com. Hello and welcome to the iCritical Care podcast sponsored by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Smith. Today we're going to talk about hemodynamic monitoring in the ICU with Dr. Michael Scott. He's an adjunct professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's very good to be on the show. Thank you. You know, so Dr. Scott, you're speaking to a radiologist, right? I, I haven't been in, in the ICU in so, so many years. I do remember very specifically the importance of hemodynamic monitoring, fluid management in, in, in critical care patients. So I just thought maybe for a moment we could just back up for a sec and talk about why this is so important. You know, even given the context of COVID today, like what are, you, what are your thoughts about, about how important this topic is? Yeah, I think fluid therapy is one of the key interventions that we do on critical care that can make a a massive difference to the patient. I think everyone's aware that that fluid therapy is key to maintaining intravascular volume and a good cardiac output and and blood flow around the body to perfuse organs and avoid organ dysfunction. And also there's increasing recognition that there is a threshold mean arterial pressure below which you go gives you a signal of of injuries, particularly AKI and myocardial injury. And so you could say, well, why not just give lots and lots of fluid to a patient and just to optimize those at all the time? But we do know, too, that there's a downstream major uh, complications are caused by fluid overload. And as soon as you give around about 40 to 50 mils per kilo of fluid above someone's sort of dry weight, which is about two to three kilograms in practice, you start getting a signal of all-cause complications because you get pulmonary uh, problems, you get uh, gut edema. And and the more fluid overload you get downstream, the more the signal is of increasing complications. So you've got this problem that the easiest thing to do is to give fluid, but if you don't pay particular attention to it, you get you pay for it downstream. So what we really need is some form of monitoring system to add to clinical uh, ability to enable the the fact that we can keep our patients well resuscitated but avoid that fluid overload downstream. It's been particularly pertinent in the COVID crises because we've seen different phases of how patients get sick. They've arrived dehydrated and very sick initially. They're then fluid resuscitated and then there's been different patterns of how they've been treated, either we've kept them breathing on oxygen or they've ended up being intubated and on a ventilator. And for both of those, our approach to fluid therapy has also been different. Yeah, it's interesting, right, Dr. Scott? I I, I do remember this, right? There's a balance between dry and wet, right? At the end of the day, we don't want to be too dry in critically care patients. As you mentioned, in, in, in the COVID crisis, a lot of these people are coming in to the hospital already in severe distress, from what I understand, and they are dehydrated. You 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 give that fluid, but they but you got to balance that. You got You got to know when to when to back that off. Is do you believe that's one of the greatest challenges for critical care doctors when it comes to maintaining perfusion? Is figuring out like wet versus dry. Like how how do I balance that? Is that one of the biggest challenges? I think it is actually because obviously too much fluid and the first organ often to go down is your lungs 
particularly in physiological situations such as COVID, where you've got a, a disease process in the lungs. And breakdown of, of the alveolar membrane can lead to uh, increased extravascular lung water and, and ARDS. And then you've also got your kidney, which, which likes adequate intravascular volume. So really what we're seeing in medicine is, is you've got to balance the risk between organs. We did have the luxury, really, when continuous venovenous hemodialysis came along that, that we could always run patients on the slightly drier side in order to protect their lungs and put them on early dialysis. But what's been fascinating in the last few months with COVID is because there's been such a strain on resource allocation, we haven't really had that luxury of being able to have this backup of uh, renal support that you would otherwise be able to offer every patient because we've just had such a, a huge number of patients that have been so sick, requiring a lot of facilities. And a lot of these patients, obviously, that are coming in have comorbidities, diabetes, heart disease, uh, COPD, lung, other lung issues, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, guess, I guess what comes to my mind then is like when someone like yourself is at the bedside and you're you're trying to balance that that fluid management yet at the same time there's some clinical interventions that maybe you need to do to stabilize the patient make sure that they're getting better how do how do you how do you manage that how do you decide okay if i'm going to do this intervention at bedside how does that affect the hemodynamics is that a conversation you have with the other doctors are there is there standardization for some of those interventions and how they affect perfusion yeah, I wouldn't say there's, there's a great standardization across the ICU community because everyone has different skill sets and different equipment available. But one of the, the two key areas, I think, which have helped uh, push us towards an area where we can start standardizing, and, and that is the use of bedside ultrasounds to assess fluid status and the filling of the heart. And the other is the use of arterial waveform analysis, which we can uh, now use algorithms to estimate stroke volume and also responsiveness to fluid. And I think that's where the community are going. It's, it's is the patient truly responsive to a fluid bolus or not? And if you do give that fluid bolus, is it actually going to benefit them or is it going to harm them downstream? So I think that's the framework of how we approach a patient. And so really, when you're faced with a patient who needs resuscitating and hypotensive initially, it's a straightforward problem because you can ultrasound them, show that they're intravascularly dry and give them a fluid bolus. I think the problem comes is when you've got this complex uh, disease mechanisms that we see on ICU where you've got vasodilation of the arteries. So you've got vasoplegic shock. So you can actually keep giving fluid and it then stops actually raising the blood pressure. And what you really need is a vasopressor, such as something like norepinephrine. And so the, the art of getting the balance of filling the circulation and before squeezing it with a vasopressor is absolutely key. Because if you start the vasopressor too early, then you're going to hurt your splanchnic and renal blood supply and, and actually create more problems. So the art is getting the balance and I, I like to really break it down very simply and call it the approach is fill flow pressure, where you, you fill the tank 
which is the heart, uh, make sure there's adequate flow and oxygen delivery. And after you've got enough oxygen delivery and flow to the organs, then really what you've got to do is set your perfusion pressure. And that then is, is dialing up the norepinephrine or vasopressor, whichever you use, to get the right mean arterial pressure. And then you end up with a, a balanced circulation with the minimum amount of fluid that you need to attain that. But Dr. Scott, then that implies that we're not just doing ultrasound at the bedside. We got we have to do some echoes, right? So you have you have two different technicians working at the bedside, right, together, making sure that the heart is maintaining that flow based on that bolus of fluid, and then the and then the ultrasound tech making sure that we're perfusing, uh, like for example, the kidneys properly with that. So do you see both of those? technologies working uh, together in this kind of scenario? Yes, and I I think what we've seen in the last uh, 10 years is most critical care physicians, such as myself, have now taken up the skill of bedside ultrasound to look at both the venous capacitance measuring the IVC and also being able to do a good estimate of filling of the left ventricle, looking at different views and making sure that the heart is structurally sound and there's no other issues such as uh, tamponade or valvular issues. So it, it, it's increased our bedside decision-making by having this skill set. So we can do the first two things, as you said, the fill and the flow and optimize that. And then when you look at the pressure after that and you know you've optimized the previous two, you can safely start a vasopressor uh, and then maintain perfusion. How do you, as as a critical care physician, though, like when you're giving some of these medications that can dilate versus constrict, et cetera, et cetera, how, how, how do you um, measure then some of the other key parameters when giving fluids, such as like stroke volume, stroke volume variation? Like how, how do you – and I bring this up because you mentioned there really isn't a lot of standardization within your field. So, so when giving fluids, how do you um, – standardize the applying of some of these key parameters like stroke volume? Yeah, um, stroke volume can be measured in many different ways. Obviously, you can use uh, thermodilation such as a Swanglance catheter. You can use transthoracic or transesophageal echo. Uh, You can use esophageal Doppler. And then you can use waveform data, often arterial line. The waveform data off an arterial line in a patient breathing spontaneously can give you trends and it can give you swings and it can give you the response to a fluid bolus. But we can have more information if you've got a ventilated patient. If you can ventilate a patient a tidal volume of around about 8 mils per kilo, you can then look at something called the pulse pressure variation or the stroke volume variation. And that is actually using the pulse contour wave analysis. You can actually measure the estimate, the stroke volume and how that's changing through the respiratory cycle. And this has been shown to be very accurately predict whether you would be responsive to a fluid bolus or not. And we're looking at figures of a stroke volume variation of of less than 12%. You're very unlikely to need fluid if you're ventilated at eight mils per kilo. And pulse pressure variation uh, slightly higher, around about 14%. And these markers are very useful because when you've got an arterial line in a sedated and ventilated patient bedside, you can have these running uh, constantly. And then obviously you can track the changes such that if your stroke volume variability raised to, say, 16 or 18%, 
there is a very strong chance that that patient would benefit from a fluid bolus. And then the stroke volume variation would go back to a more normal figure, less than 12%. So I want to take this conversation now into what's obviously the big elephant in the room, and that's covid and I appreciate, Dr. Scott, the, the work that you've been doing, you know, critical care nurses and physicians like yourself are really on the front line and doing an amazing job. So thank you so much for that. And, and I know the amount of hours and time that you're putting in is like nutty and crazy. And I, I just, just so you know that we, we appreciate that what you're doing and, and taking the time to come talk to us today. Like so, let's talk a little bit about COVID. Uh, what, what has COVID done in, to the ICU? Like, how has that changed the way maybe you approach patients who are coming in really critically ill, really dehydrated? Some of them maybe need to be ventilated right away. Maybe some don't. How how are you managing all that? Yeah, I, th- I think going to a higher level. Obviously, our whole approach to COVID has been different because we've had all the contact precautions and PPE to protect all the staff from any contact with the virus. And I must say, uh, I mean, at the University of Pennsylvania, we've been very successful with our PPE. In, in we, we don't know of anyone on our units who've actually developed COVID while looking after patients. So I think that's been a real success. And I think at the start of the COVID pandemic, everyone was obviously very anxious, but now people feel quite comfortable putting on the N95s and the PAPAs and entering rooms. So it's less of an issue. Um, What the higher level view is, though, is it's meant that we haven't been in such close contact with our patients' bedside because we've tried to limit contact, limit nurses going into the room, as well as obviously the physicians. So use of an arterial line has been extremely useful in these patients because you can then monitor them uh, remotely and you get quite a lot of information from the arterial line. So I think what's interesting is out of this is is we've learned to probably look at monitors a little bit more carefully because we can't always go in and actually examine the patient necessarily as frequently as we would have otherwise. So the use of these indices, PPV and SVV, have been very useful, as have having a continuous arterial waveform analysis up with continuous cardiac output monitoring. Those become much more standard, I think, for looking after COVID patients. There's other things, I think, too, is, is we've used the passive leg raise a lot to look at fluid responsiveness because the great thing about that is, is you're lifting both legs up in the air for, for at least sort of half a minute so that you're effectively giving a fluid bolus. But as soon as you drop the legs down, you, you haven't given that fluid permanently. So it gives you the chance to see if the patient's fluid responsive without actually giving them the fluid. And then arterial lines being very useful at assessing that as well. The other thing I think that we have done a lot in COVID patients who are ventilated is they have had central venous cannulas in place to run low-dose neotropes or vasopressors and also sedatives and things. And although central venous lines don't give you fluid responsiveness they do give you an idea of the venous capacitance and whether you're you're you you have a very low venous capacitance if you have the cvp of you know naught to two so again we, we have used that in fluid management and higher cvp from eight to ten suddenly makes you aware that in a patient who's got acute lung injury 
you might actually, as we discussed at the beginning of this, you might actually want to squeeze the circulation rather than actually give more fluid in order to attain what you're trying to do to avoid any extra fluid going into the lungs. So it has changed our approach it, 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 because you're not so in contact with the patient, but you still need to be bedside. You still need to do the ultrasound. You still need to uh, make sure that the information you're getting is correct and interpret uh, interpret it accordingly. What about are there you know there's been some um, reports in, from different medical centers, not just in the United States, but I think throughout the world about d- different techniques, different strategies for keeping people off ventilation. And I wanted to ask you this because sometimes when I hear that, it makes it sound like ventilation is something you don't always want. But if you're managing hemodynamics correctly, it, isn't ventilation one of the best ways to help people to take a break and heal, actually? Take the pressure off the lungs to to have to, to take the burden of, of gas exchange? So what your thoughts on that? I mean, do, do you necessarily, when somebody comes in ICU, do you look at them, Dr. Scott, and you say, all right, what can I do to keep this person off ventilation? Or is that maybe sometimes the better option? Yeah, I think that's a very good question because we know that the best physiology for your body is breathing spontaneously. And obviously we have swings in going from negative to positive intrapural pressures to actually uh, take a breath. So as soon as you ventilate someone, you're putting positive pressure continuously into the lungs, especially with some PEEP. And that has physi- physiological issues, both basically putting pressure on the right heart and also increasing intrathoracic pressure. And obviously, airway pressure can lead to trauma of the lungs, which is why we go for a protective lung strategy with uh, low tidal volume and low driving pressure. The effect, though, of ventilating someone is you're taking away worker breathing. When people are very sick coming into hospital, worker breathing can be 40 to 50% of your oxygen requirement. So one of the key benefits in resuscitation of ventilating someone is you're taking away worker breathing. And if you've got left ventricular failure too, it can help offload the heart. So in those patients, it can be truly uh, beneficial you're immediately increasing oxygen delivery by the fact that you're reducing worker breathing. And then by ventilating someone with positive pressure, you actually drive more oxygen into the body and recruit alveoli that otherwise might not be working and participating in gas exchange. So you can often improve oxygen delivery quite dramatically, despite the fact physiologically it's not uh, always the best option. The problem we have downstream is we know that lymphatic drainage of the lungs is important to maintain uh, your clear lung fields. And one of the problems with positive pressure ventilation being on a ventilator is you, you get this problems with lymphatic drainage and the clearance of the lungs and secretions. So it does predispose you to getting a higher risk of pneumonia. And in COVID, there's also other problems because you can get the lung injury. Backing up a bit, really, with the COVID lung, we we saw two phases of COVID lung injury. The acute phase is really uh, you're getting an inflammatory response in your lung with the virus. And the most profound thing is is hypoxia due to shunt. So you've got areas of the lung which are damaged and hyperemic and and not taking part in gas exchange. And we saw a lot of that patients arriving with very, very low saturations and they responded immediately to 
positive pressure ventilation or BiPAP. We also had these special helmets, which we got from Italy, which fitted over the patient's head and we could put positive pressure on. And, and that helped immediately and would get rid of the shunt. Some patients were too sick for that, needed ventilating. And in those patients, initially people thought you would need a traditional high PEEP strategy, but we didn't actually find that. And they also went on to develop a more traditional ARDS florid lung picture five or six days later. So we, I, I think we saw two clear patterns of lung injury in the, in the COVID pandemic this acute sort of shunting uh, when patients arrive early in the disease and then the, the really florid ARDS downstream, which not everyone got, but probably about 25% of people with bad pulmonary injury on arrival did seem to develop that. that Dr. Scott, that's just all so fascinating. Like in, in just your in your answer right there, I think we have about another five podcasts, just so you know. So we, we may we, we may ask you to come back. <laughs> so hang in there. Yeah, I, I just you know, with everything we just discussed, it's it really is fascinating. Like how would you like to kind of summarize all this? Like how would you like to you know just help other critical care providers to understand a little bit about hemodynamics? especially in the context of COVID, what would you like them to know? Well, I think the first thing to view fluid, intravenous fluid, is as a drug, and how much you give is important. It's easy to throw fluid and resuscitate people early on, but you can pay for it later. And that's what we saw in the COVID population, is once you ended up with a, a significant positive fluid balance, it was very hard to really get those patients back down uh, to normal ventilatory parameters. And so I think the key thing is, is to, to obviously use your bedside clinical data, to use ultrasound interpretation, looking at both the IVC and the cardiac function. And to then use, once you know you've set your fill in your flow, then to titrate your vasopressors. And I think the, the, the thing that we found very useful, especially in the more hands-off approach with COVID patients was an indwelling arterial line and using continuous cardiac output monitoring so that you could map the trend of cardiac output and stroke volume in those that are breathing spontaneously and those that are ventilated uh, at eight mils per kilo, uh, which uh, does prove some problems, obviously, with the, with the uh, ARDS network ventilatory strategy of five to seven, but eight is not far off seven. So that's what we started at, at least after initial resuscitation and then moved on to a lower tidal volume. And then you can use the other parameters like SVV and PPV. So it's keep the basics, really. Fill flow pressure and don't give too much fluid. Fantastic. Dr. Scott, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Dr. Michael Scott is the adjunct professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Mike. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Edwards Life Sciences. Please visit our clinical education website at education.edwards.com. Michael A. Smith, M.D., received his medical doctorate from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He practiced internal medicine and radiology in Dallas, Texas in the early 2000s. 
before transitioning to the pharmaceutical and nutraceutical industries as an educator and consultant. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.